Adam and Chad back for number three now in our new format on our YouTube channel, Adam and Chad. Make sure you like and subscribe. I'm Chad. Uh, the guy in the Alabama hat is Adam joining us on this episode. John Harden, the sports mixologist, Johnny Radio, as he is known, a uh, sports jock for Sports 56, AM 560, FM 87.7. I think they have actually another FM frequency now, don't they? 961 baby 961 so uh and and in, you got something in tunica too right or is oh, that, that the one at a tunica 961 but it's such a strong tower we're pumping uh you know 50,000 watts almost so okay yeah all right awesome and uh, of course uh everybody knows adam is with us 51 country 93.5 fm out of covington and uh where i used to work but now i am with farmers insurance memphisfarmers.com is where you can get a quote from me. Uh, we got uh, John on here today because I talked about him in the first episode. And in episode one, I told you that he had told me about this stimulus thing, which is I call myself a student of history, uh, but I had never heard of a Jubilee. And so there's, there's, it's like a stimulus alternative sort of. John has got to get into it, but I just want to jump. I'm going to jump right into it, John. Let us know what this Jubilee is. All right, if we want to go with this right off the top, I don't mind going with this right off the top because it's um, it's very pertinent with what's going on. And again, I want to explain something to uh, all of our listeners and people watching. Jubilee is something that goes all the way back to the Bible. It's something that's been done um, for hundreds of thousands of years. In today's, uh, the, I'm not asking you all to look at a Jubilee through um, the Torah or the Old Testament or the New Testament Bible, I'm talking about debt forgiveness. And I'm saying that the year of the American Jubilee and the reason I truly believe that it might be coming, and a lot of people laugh at me and say I'm laugh, I'm an idiot or whatever, but hey, man, uh, if you study maybe Ray Dalio, uh, his credit cycle theory, and it basically talks about how we've become such a consumer nation. We are about consumption. We don't really produce anything anymore. So if you depend on the backbone of the economy as the consumers, and we just laid off 20 some odd million people, it feels like those consumers who hold up this economy, they're at the end of the rope. And what I'm trying to say is, is historically, if you look at things like in, in what we're going through, we always go through cycles, right? And in our lifetime, we've already had the Great Recession. I don't even know what you call the coronavirus. I mean, we've lost more jobs oh, in the Great Recession and the Great Recession. Um, it's something scary. And again, five million jobs, by the way, five million jobs this uh, this week were lost, and uh, or five for unemployment rather, six million last week, and then I think four million the week before that. So that's uh, just records all over the place for this coronavirus. That uh, and that, that's something I, I was going to start out with that, but then I really just wanted to get to this jubilee thing because uh, I'm. I, I, it's kind of fascinating. And interesting. Yeah, it really is fascinating. So, uh, but I, I will get to some thoughts on the coronavirus too, and uh, just you know. A lot of people are wondering if we've gone too far or did we go far enough and how long it's going to last. You know, Chad, I believe the coronavirus is going to be what leads us into the American Jubilee. And I want to remind, and I'll be very quick when I say this, historically in cases like this, governments come in 
and they typically use centralized banks to help enact like money to direct consumers. And you saw $1,200 go out to all these people. Well, the small business loans has already been wiped up. This is what I'm talking about, people being at the end of the rope. Um, everybody's always worried about things like this, the winners and losers, when we should be about, worried about winners and losers um, when we talk about the simple fact that we are $24 trillion in debt and an individual American is about 38000 in debt. Thomas Jefferson said there's two ways to enslave people, by force or by debt. Right now they're enslaving us by force. And I, I just want to ask you this one question real quick. Go back to 1930 and ask those people, and, and I, I want to say this before I ask this question, think about the difference between 1930 and 1950. 1950 and 1970, 1970 and 1990, and basically where we are today and see those 20, 30 year cycles and how they play out. This last 30 year old cycle, we've had more downs and we've had ups. But in 1930, if you would have said, hey, uh, you know, the New Deal, that's definitely, you know, going to be the future. 1950 was so different than 1930. And what I'm trying to say is 1920 is going to be so different. I mean, 2020 is going to be so different than 2040. Uh, millennials are getting taxed with student loans. They have no money. Um, and again, the Federal Reserve, which is basically printing money like it's nothing. And again, quantitative, quantitative easing has gone on now four times. And this is the fifth time that we've had a QE. And again, I just want to remind people one last thing, and I'm going to shut up. If you keep depending on the American consumer to spend, but yet he runs dry, how is the economy going to go forward? Well, you know, uh, so you brought up a couple of interesting things there, but one thing uh, for sure oh, is, oh, sorry, go ahead. By the way, I don't know if I say a Jubilee is debt forgiveness. What I'm basically saying, the Jubilee is get rid of the student debt, get rid of basically wipe out the credit card slate. You start over with the American economy and you're saying, well, you can't do that. That's impossible. They've done it after World War One. They did it. I mean, they've been doing it for thousands of years. And again, if you look at Ray Dalio's cycle of basically business and history, this global economy is completely at the end of its rope. Well, one thing uh, I think that maybe some skeptics would say, like, let, let's Damn. just let's let's about this, did they? <laughs> let's take on uh, the uh, student debt uh, issue first uh, because it's a, it's much talked about because it's an election year, so we hear a lot about it from uh, different. Uh, people and uh, different candidates and this person is going to forgive this or that or whatever. And uh, so anyway, uh, the idea is to just flat forgive debt. And the issue I think that some people would take with it is what if you're uh, somebody who struggled for years, but like, let's say, this month is your last student debt payment and you paid $45,000 to go to college uh, and, or, well, you know, I'm making up numbers, but let's say you, you pay. This, here, I'm going to answer your question real quick. You would consider yourself lucky. And here's the reason what I'm trying to say, and this is what I'm talking about. People are at the end of the rope. You have to realize 1% of the population controls 50% of the wealth. If 99% of people out there are struggling, 
why not give them an opportunity to start over and then make this great economy, this great engine that we have. And people will say, well, how can you just start over? We still have the airplanes. We still have all the weapons. We still have all the people. We still have, it's kind of like, oh, the airlines are going to file bankruptcy. Why do you think they get to keep filing bankruptcy? Because they have all the damn airplanes and we still have to fly. Um, if you wipe out the debt, and again, if you look at this debt and these numbers and what the federal, like the Fed's interest rates are damn zero. It's fake money anyway. Hey, that's now that's something. And that's something I've been arguing uh, anyway, is that I, I think we're going to get ourselves in trouble printing money the way we are. Uh, we're really, <laughs> we're really in danger in my estimation of devaluing our currency to a, a really bad point. And if you look at like what happened in Greece, when you had like just massive rapid inflation uh, because their currency had been devalued so badly uh, and you don't want the same thing to happen here because when our economy does start getting back to work, you would like that to mean something and, the more money that is printed and it's kind of a deep concept because it's on the outside looking in, it's like, okay, we're not on the gold standard anymore. So why does the government actually owe anybody any money? Because they make the money to begin with. They print the money to begin with, but, uh, but remember an infinite amount versus a finite amount. That is what determines how much everything is worth. Right. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. The other part about it is once you get into a debt where your GDP, you can't really, you know, the PE ratios and your GDP and everything really realistically don't match up in a real world scenario, except for the fact that for some reason, the Federal Reserve in the United States and they just get to basically print money. And, you know, I mean, think about what Greece did for the uh the billion i mean the the trillion or the two trillion they were in debt or whatever it was and how, how many austerity programs that they had to go through so basically again what i'm trying to say is if it is funny money and i believe wholeheartedly that's unequivocally what it is if banks can borrow at zero percent interest rate loan it out nine times to people would pay it four to 19 percent well they're going to do good and i'm tired of seeing that every rich person continue to make it. I want to start seeing um, equality. And what I mean by this is equity equality. And I'm not saying that you give somebody cash, but if you leveled the playing field by maybe taking, and what I'm saying is these millennials, people that are younger than us, they've kicked the can so far down the road. They have hog tied the millennials. And if you think that you've given your children a better opportunity than what, I mean, if you really think that your children are going to have a better opportunity than you, whoever's listening, then you're lying to yourself because you've been kicking things so far down the can that you've strapped these millennials with so much debt. That's why 50% of them are living at home. Adam, uh, you've got experience in student debt. I've actually, uh, whether it's uh, fortunate or ignorance in my life, I don't know. I've, I haven't accumulated student debt, but uh, uh, the uh, uh, but Adam, you've had it. So what are your thoughts on just that particular portion right now? But, and then the Jubilee overall. Well, um, I think as far as to the point of the devaluing the currency, I don't see the government changing until it actually does devalue it. And if you see a major shift, I mean, it does devalue a little bit, but I actually, when it actually happens, that's when you're going to see them actually take action. They're more reactive than proactive. 
and then uh, as far as the national uh, with the debt, student loan debt, yeah, part of the problem is the way they went about it. If they are going to forgive, I think they got the money to forgive, but you've got to restructure the way student loans are given, how they're treated from that point on. You can't, you can't forgive until you've got another plan to move forward. Otherwise, you're going to end up in the same boat. It's like healthcare. Years from now. Yeah, healthcare, same way. Exactly. I think what he said is perfect, but also we have to look back and why is it that student uh, payments in the last 35 years have gone up 3,000% compared to an average person's wage has gone up right. what? Thing? Um, I mean, my dad graduated. It was $250 a semester to go to the University of Memphis. Right now, it's about if you want to take 18 hours, it's almost, I mean, it's like 12 grand. Oh, that's, yeah. that's one generation. That's that's jumped in one generation. That and so I, tuition is out of control. And and so I I agree with what you're saying there, Adam. It is, uh, and, and I think it's like a lot of people said uh, during the repeal Obamacare thing. I think there's uh, no doubt. I mean, you're just lying if you think that uh, the Affordable Care Act actually made healthcare affordable. Like uh, because most people's went up by two, three hundred percent. Um, yeah. but in order that it would be irresponsible, I think, and that was the argument of a lot of people, it would be certainly irresponsible to take that, uh, out without having something else in place to take the place of it, because there are silver linings and there's little good things that happen, but you can't drop it all completely out. Just drop all regulation. And once you have to have another plan going forward. And so I think that's uh, that's true with student debt as well. And what I wanted to move to though is uh, I want uh, John to talk more about the history of the Jubilee because uh, it was used after major wars already in this country. So it's not just an ancient concept. It's also a modern concept, relatively modern, that's been used when our economy suffered during war. Now, our economy didn't suffer been during World War II because of manufacturing. And, and, and I will have to say something. This is going to be a very foreign idea to Americans. This is something that's been, it goes all the way back to, again, the Old Testament, the Torah, uh, Egyptian culture. Uh, it's in Europe. And again, it happened after World War One, but it wasn't America where they did the Jubilee. They did the Jubilee in Germany. So again, this is something, and that's why I call it, the, when, I, when I brought it up and I said the American Jubilee, this will be the first Jubilee in the history of the America in the history of the United States since the Revolutionary War. Now, that is a long damn time ago. And a lot of people think something that happened that long ago, it's impossible. But if you look at the end of the rope, again, which I try to say, and if you bring up four factors, and the four factors that I always like basically say is, one, um, you just basically have to consider the precedent, like where we are as a nation, $24 trillion in debt, the average person, how much debt they owe. Second, if the Federal Reserve is going to print all this money and, def and weaken basically uh, the dollar and we're going to try to hold on to what we have, but yet we're not going to help like mortgage-backed securities, um, we're going to continue the same cycle, the only people who are going to get better are the 1% and the 99 are just going to fall farther behind. And then when you have that, there won't be any growth. Well, actually, in my opinion, I hate to say this, It'll be like riding in the streets because you can't get water and you can't get milk and you can't feed your child. Or in Detroit, you have people who can't get clean water. They got lead in it. And I'm just saying we have to do something because 
the road that we are on is a road to destruction. And if we don't change something, eventually this damn thing's going to crash. Now, let me, let me, uh, let me say one, if I was going to use examples going forward, I would probably use the revolutionary war and not, uh, not Germany post World War One because it only took them about twenty years to put Hitler in power and start World War Two. That's a good <laughs> point. But that's what I'm saying. They did use that because they didn't want to punish them at the time. So um, that's, that that is the thing about the Jubilee. You know, um, it is a very interesting. And, and by the way, it's either going to be um, you know the powers that be like NATO and those who are in power are going to allow it, or they're going to have to have because of the coronavirus, not just an American but a global type you know, forgiveness of a certain type of debt. Yeah. Well, let me tell you what I, what I like about it is I like the idea that it is debt forgiveness rather than cash disbursement. Because uh, once again, I'm, you're talking about the printing of money versus the government working out with certain institutions to forgive debt. And so to allow uh, institutions to lose some made up money in a lot of cases, because in a lot of cases, they've already made back the principal on interest. So you're only talking about a loss of interest uh, rather than the initial money they actually loaned out. And so they, they've probably recuperated that in a lot of these cases. Uh, so it, I'm in favor of that because I, I think that handing out cash is just not good. It, it's great for getting elected, right? And it's great for uh, saying, hey, we did this and hey, it's fair because we gave all these people cash or whatever. And politicians know that it would be toxic to give money to companies um, because people would say, oh, you're bailing out the corporate fat cats and the top 1% or whatever, not realizing that the companies are the ones who employ most of America and pay the paychecks. And so keeping them open, would you rather get $1,200? I knocked Spider-Man over. Would you rather, uh, get $1,200 today or keep your job for the rest of the year? And, and so I think that's where people aren't forward looking in this. And I, the and I think too that is part of where you'll run into a uh, problem when they start discussing the jubilee because it's gonna turn it's gonna turn into being called a big bank bailout. And okay. Although I I understand that it's not and that it debt forgiveness to me is way better at helping people than uh, than just handing them a blank check so they can go and buy a new sixty eight inch TV. Uh, the, I think though, the, the spin on it will be big bank bailout. I'm going to blow your mind. I'm going to blow your mind. Are you ready for this? The reason, okay. When I say Jubilee, the American Jubilee, I am talking more so about student, um, tuition forgiveness more so than anything, because that's the one thing that is crippling America. I think more than anything, that's why kids with college degrees are moving back in with their parents it is hard to pay a mortgage and pay a $700 student loan. That's just difficult. Plus the fact that insurance companies have gone out. But here's what I wanted to remind you. And this is why I say a student, a, a Jubilee right now, it's the perfect time. Because did you know if you wiped out in all the student debt in the United States, it would not be 2% of what the universities made last year in endowments? Oh, I believe it. People, this is what I get upset about 
people forget that these universities, the United States of America, only made $553 billion off their endowments. Harvard made $37 million. Yale, $25. Texas, $25. Stanford, $24. Princeton, $24. All of the universities last year alone made $542 billion. So if you took out that trillion and it would be over a two-year, you know, a two-year period, it would be, I mean, over a 10-year period, you could make that to where you would only have a 2% loss each year. And they could wipe all that debt away. We're talking about the richest universities in the world. Harvard has more money than some countries. Okay, let's uh, now let's let's get in the weeds a little bit though on uh, student <laughs> debt relief, and and I want to say, let's say let's take the average student, and you've got let's say you got forty fifty thousand dollars in student debt. Uh, just I'm just throwing numbers out there right now, but you've got forty fifty thousand. What do you pay per month toward that debt? And how flexible is it? I've never had a student loan, so I'm gonna leave that to the two of you. Oh, it sucks. Uh, I mean, that I pay five fifty every single month. Yeah, I can tell you. And me, I have been—I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate. I have a unique perspective because of my medical situation, and because I decided I wanted to stay in school for like fifteen years because I changed my mind so much. And yeah. That's got uh, I, more to do with it than the cancer. Well, yeah, it, that just, that just kind of hindered the whole process. It just kind of hindered the whole process and, you know, just made things a little worse. But I started at, uh, let's see, Indiana university in 1998, went there for one year, moved, went to Alabama, went to school for a year. Now tuition then was for a full year was $2,300 in 2000. And I went there, the interest rate on my school loan then was locked in at 2.4%. Well, then I went to a community college here when I moved here after I left Alabama and went there and it was only about 2,500 a year then. And then I went to University of Memphis that went to almost 6,000 yep. a year. Well, I went to school from 2000 till I graduated University of Memphis in 2010. So over a 12-year span, I accumulated school loans on the low end. Well, the low end ones were 2.4%. The max you could go was 8% for the interest they could charge you. Well, I got to Memphis, same boat. Well, then all of a sudden, in 2008, tuition had grown. It went up like 14% every year, which was ridiculous. And it was I blame that on the universities. And there's a whole nother, that's a whole nother plot of stuff to get into. But uh, yep. then, I, then all of a sudden, we had a presidential change every year. I don't know how much most people know with this. Um, each year they have the opportunity to fix and change those interest rates and to decide what's going to be for the whole next year. Well, it was locked when Bush was in, in 2000, with 2000, 2008, it was locked at 2.4, 3.4. And every year he kind of kept it there. Well, once he got out of there, all of a sudden it jumped my interest rate when my last two years of school at university of Memphis was 12 to 15,000. Uh, for a year by that point, 6.8%. I knew that six up here. Yeah. Yeah. And that was because 6.8 right now. Yeah. And, and all it was, people say, well, the president did it. It was no, it's because the inaction of that, of, I won't mention by name, uh, to do that. And, um, 
when that happened, my, well, my two highest loans were at that 6.8%, my last two years at Memphis, $32,000 of school loans. It locked at 6.8. All my previous years combined didn't equal that, and they were locked in at 2.4%. Two years. Yeah, and now, when I, the year after I graduated, I came down, with, I found out I had cancer, couldn't work. Had to got of course they let you go into ferment. There's all kind of. I'm sorry. I was just thinking, man, you got cancer and they deferred it. Everything. I was just listening. Oh, oh yeah, no, they and see they they took care of me. You know, I I put, I filed for uh, let them know what happened, and they you know they they're real good about that. They locked it in, but they'll defer it, but the interest accrues daily. And I found that out. Well, it's six point eight percent. I'll give you a point right now. That was 2011 when all this happened to me. I'd, I was paying $25 a month. They said, well, can you pay at least this? I was like, yeah, I can do $25 a month. Meanwhile, the interest is capitalizing every year. Man. $2,400 a month is what the interest was hitting because it was 6.8, all because the president didn't act and make it go lower. They have that power. Man, Once you, know, you pay loan back, and if you pay over 50% of your loan back, damn, dude, it's paid back. Right. Quit. You know, I mean, 80, 90, 100%. That's ridiculous. Right. You know what? Because of my 6.8, now I've paid off because they're through different lenders. You know, the ones through Memphis were through one. The ones from 2000 and all that were through Ed America and a couple others. And those were only two, three. I paid those off with within a year of paying the little $25, $50 payments uh, that they allowed me when I was in deferment. But they deferred the largest amount because they wanted me to knock out those old ones first. But they were at the lower interest rate. The big ones, my payment was going to be like, 1400 a month and I you can't pay that well as it's went on in the last three four years my income never got much higher so they still said well we'll put you on income based income based says I had to pay $24 a month so I'm like okay that's kind of but then I was like well what about the interest oh no $2,400 each month accrued in interest now and then the money never hit principal it was just taking little chunk to this day right now I I went from having only thirty-two thousand, my they're showing I owe ninety-eight thousand in school. I was gonna say that's a so written- you owe the same principal. But wait, wait, wait. Let me let me before you jump in, John. Uh, let me say uh, you're paying twenty-four dollars a month as your minimum payment right now. No, right now it's zero because they, they looked at my overall debt because I had other debts I couldn't pay while when I was my cancer treatments and stuff. Yeah, okay, I had medical well, debt. Either way, so like a student loan forgiveness, though, means nothing to you in the here and now because it's not costing you anything right now anyway. No, but it will. I can't if file. thousand out, out from over your head, wouldn't you feel better? It does prevent you from buying a house, I suppose, because of your no. de- credit to uh, your debt to, to income ratio. Uh, you know, it, it still affects now, that. Now, this is the dirty low-down secret they don't tell you. On my credit report, it doesn't affect, like, I just bought a new car. It doesn't affect all that. But if I start making more money, then that, that income-based program goes away. Then all yep. of a sudden I owe that 98000 and they're going to want 1400 a month, and there's no way I can say no because I'm making 60000 a year or whatever. There's like a threshold. I've just been fortunate. I've been under that threshold since my cancer treatments, and I've had so much medical debt to pay off. They've said, well, the medical stuff's more important. We're going to let you be under that program. But can- as soon as I make more money, that should make uh, like cancer should never be a positive. Right. Right. And that's the way they, like, I, I have to fill out a thing every year after 25 years, they'll forgive the debt. That's what they've told me. But 
if I start making money before now, they're like more money. I can, I, I'm only like, I think 5,000 a year from that threshold where they'll hit me with a $400 a month payment and I can't get out. And that's all interest. The interest is still building. Even though I'm making that 400 a month. Hey, that's yeah. what, what, what's happening to all these young people and mm -hmm. the millennials and they're living with their families. And you know what? I, I have no problem with a nuclear family. If we, if you want a nuclear family, but to force it on people because they can't afford a car, they can't afford, you know, to take their wife on a honeymoon because right. in these young kids, when they graduate college, I, you know, I taught for a, you know, a decade, you know, how hard it, what, it broke my heart to have these kids come to me with a degree and they couldn't get a job in their degree. They have right. $20,000, $30,000 in debt. They didn't get a job that paid them 10 bucks an hour. That, right. That's heartbreaking. And if I get a job making more than I'm making now, it's going to cripple. It'll cripple me financially because then they'll take more money from you. Mm -hmm. And not, I mean, I haven't purposely tried not to make more, but it stifles that growth. It makes me scared of, okay, say I land yeah. that job. Well, I'm going to get and, nailed that next year. And a lot of what you're talking about is actually the, a lot of the same problem with uh, our current welfare system is uh, right. that it makes you dependent on the situation you're in because if you better once you reach yeah screwed. if you better yourself you get screwed right. so hard that's right and that's right. where exactly. i'm at it's like right now i've i've figured out thank goodness my background in accounting and logistics all that kind of prepared me to know i know how to navigate the system to where i can get a new car where i can live a normal life but i know i'm going to get punished for success if i move forward yeah that's gonna, exactly right punishment for success destroyed. and that's They're what gonna, we got to get away off. from and with the way the interest rate's set up It'll, I'll never pay. I've, I've done the math. I could pay 2000 a month for the next 10 years and I still won't pay at all. Well, because, well, they, because it's constantly accruing. Y'all vote for me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll vote for John for president. Um, I think it's interesting though, to look at the Jubilee too, for, uh, all non-secured debt. Uh, I, and I would think even a good compromise would be possibly, uh, removing, uh, outstanding interest and removing a drop in interest rates on current debts, current unsecured debts to zero. Oh, it'd make a huge uh, difference. Instead of eliminating the debt, but just drop the interest rate to zero. Uh, and that would make a huge difference for a lot of people uh, going forward and make their debt manageable. Um, I do think, uh, and that's just to kind of wrap this up, but uh, the I do think that I was talking with my wife the other day and we were talking about the results of the great depression and how it affected generations. You know, the next couple of generations really uh, saved their money. They didn't trust that the bank was going to uh, be there the next day. They didn't trust that the bottom wasn't going to fall out. But because of that, they didn't live paycheck to paycheck and they were prepared for any uh, bad times, rainy days, even if it was just their personal life and nothing to do with the rest of the world. Right. Uh, and we got away from that. And uh, now, which is why we're having to sign a lot of two trillion dollar bills now to get this forward. That's part of the reason why. Don't you think, though, and I hate to disrupt, interrupt you. I want to ask you something because I agree with everything you said. But don't you think there was a loss? Because I feel like um, when I talked to my grandfather, um, they used to talk about how the company really took care of them. Yeah. Uh, do you feel that companies today really care about their employees and actually try to take care of them? Or do you not feel like they constantly try to, you know, screw them? You know, I think, uh, I think we've seen a shift 
in that in in the last few years. I think there are plenty of companies out there that are uh, what is thought of today as the evil corporation that, you know, there's no pensions anymore. People don't uh, retire, you know, and, and, uh, and the company has always taken care of them or whatever. Uh, but I think that when the tech companies in Silicon Valley came along and they sort of changed the model of what working somewhere is like, I think people started seeing what happy employees could do and how productive they could be with less structure uh, that uh, that I think it's slowly shifting us. It has slowly. And I think this may actually help in that regard because of the, you have to have the flexibility right now if you want to stay open to let people work from home and do different things. And uh, so it's, it's letting people see that you can survive without this rigid structure you have before. So maybe we're getting back there, but yeah, we were definitely at a point where, you know, uh, companies were, not honoring their, uh, not taking care of their employees. Look, uh, nobody expects, see, it doesn't bother me like it bothers some people when a CEO or, or an owner of a company gets rich. I mean, that's why somebody goes into business. I don't want to punish success, but you do have to realize that a rising tide should lift all boats and you need to take care of the people who helped you get there. I like that. I like that. Um, so we're going to move off of this though. Cause I feel like, uh, we, we may have gotten too far in the weeds for some people, but I hope not. Uh, it's just interesting to me. I could talk about hope it all they, night. It's something different. They probably knew <laughs> we had a brain. Yeah. That's what they probably looked at us and said, man, I didn't know these guys were that sharp. Uh, <laughs> or maybe they said they didn't know we were that dumb. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, on the coronavirus, and before we uh, get off of that to some more fun stuff, though, I wanted to say that uh, are we we're at a point now, I think, where people are going to start asking, did we go too far? Because we did something that has never been done ever voluntarily. This is the first time maybe, in, I guess, in the history of the world that the world's economy has been shut down voluntarily not due to war or something like that, but it was a voluntary stop everything. Uh, and we are going to end up with less deaths than two years of the flu, probably maybe three years of the flu. I mean, it's a pandemic for sure. Uh, the main goal was to stop. And I think one thing, the biggest mistake that people are going to make is, they're going to say, see, it wasn't as bad. Well, one, we're keeping it from being bad by what we're doing. But two, the point has never been as much about the number of infections or the number of deaths that happen as a whole. It's the number that happen at one time because it's how prepared this virus moves faster than a lot of other viruses and can infect a lot more people at one time. And we know what our capacities are for medical care, and we don't want to overtax those capacities. And that's why we've done everything we've done is to avoid having uh, hospitals that are just overwhelmed. And then we really are digging mass graves and because we just can't handle the inflow. And so I think that's a lot of what it's been. But I think a lot of people are going to turn around and question and say, why 
why did we do all of this when we could have just said, be more careful around older people and did the fist bump thing like we did uh, during the swine flu or whatever, and, or the elbow bump or whatever we were. I don't know if y'all remember that, like a few back in like, I think it was 09. It was the swine flu or was that the bird flu? One of them. And it was Uh, just, we had a little bit of social distancing, but that was all that was recommended. Well, and it's always something, if you notice, it's every two years, it's always during an election cycle. You've had, <laughs> you've had SARS, you had the H1N1, Ebola. Ebola. And if you look at what years those were, it was every, it's been every two years, exactly during election year. And I don't mean like a presidential, but you know, the every two year cycle. It's, and if you look back, it's, it's amazing that, that all of a sudden this stuff happens and it always comes from the same place, same usual suspects. But I think some of it too is with this one, there was a lot more unknown than there's ever been the fear of the unknown. And then the mass death in other areas triggered just made it seem that much. And there's going to be people go back and go, Oh, we did too much. We didn't do enough. It's just, I mean, and it's kind of, but they did whatever they thought they had to do at the, at the time. And it's kind of, I don't, I really don't know. You know what? It's like the Monday morning quarterback with more Monday morning quarterbacking with this is is difficult and it's hard to talk about it because it's talking about people who have died right, uh, right. again i've lost four people I, maybe i know too many damn people i don't know um <laughs> I, i've had four people lost uh from this so i'm not gonna lie to you I, you know two days ago i was in freaking tears like you ain't even seen um but it's also, you know, looking at the economic impact of it, uh, seeing the way uh, the nurses, you know, talking with my good friend Gabe, whose girlfriend's on the front line fighting this, talking, seeing some of the nurses. And um, there, there, there are times where I'm watching this, and I'm so proud to be a human being and an American and uh, seeing, you know, people who are selfless and going out there and giving their best to help save these people who are very sick. Um, and then there's other times where I've got, again, I've had four people that have died and I haven't gone to one funeral because they're not, I'm not allowed to. Right. That's, yeah. that is not normal. And that's a hard thing because when you love somebody and you can't go to like, I mean, not even, I mean, they, they literally wouldn't let, I mean, we have like right now they're putting everybody in urns and, they say, hey, maybe next year we can have a memorial. Right. And that that does psychologically, I think, affect the you know, a lot of those families. It's hit hard in New York, it's hit hard on the West. There are certain areas that have been not affected near as much. I do truly believe one thing more than anything. The one and I don't want to be the Monday morning quarterback. I just wish we could find a test that could like be cheap easy everybody in america not you know one percent of the population but if we could all find out if we've either had it have antibodies build up if we have had it and we have antibodies build up let those people go back to work if we haven't had it keep those people safe if you're over 65 stay at home you know if you have underlining conditions like i feel like there's more we can do but i don't want to be a monday morning quarterback right but i but I also don't want to pretend that, you know, the amount of people who died and again. Um, right. Well, I'm, the hard thing, the hard thing is, is, is I know what you're trying to say. You don't want to say that any death is acceptable. 
Yes, exactly. And so, but that's I also the hard thing. Higher global economy in the tank. Right. right yeah. yeah. And and you got to so balance it. Yeah. That's the rough it's thing with this. That's why I don't want a Monday quarterback. That's a tough day of balancing act. That's yeah. right. <laughs> and so the the other thing is that we're we're dealing with a meat. I don't want to get too far in the weeds on this because this is probably for a different episode. <laughs> but uh, our media stinks. It I does. mean, they they suck. They're terrible. I saw an article, and it was a BuzzFeed article. Uh, and the guy is comparing the number of coronavirus cases in Kentucky with the number of coronavirus cases in Tennessee. And the premise of the article is that Kentucky has a Democrat governor and Tennessee has a Republican governor. And because the Democrat started quarantine six days prior to the Republican starting quarantine, that they have less cases in Kentucky. Now, the reported in the article, the number of reported cases in that article was like 1,800 for Kentucky, and then it was 5,000 for Tennessee. The number of deaths in Kentucky was like 94. The number of deaths in Tennessee was like 107. This was at the time of the article being written. The, the, the percentage of deaths is twice as much in Kentucky per infected as it, is, as it was in Tennessee, but that's not mentioned. They're just mentioned in a sheer number of cases. But the thing it doesn't take into account is how many people have been tested. Is testing more widespread in Tennessee? How do they count who died? Do they count somebody that goes into the hospital and dies of COPD but had coronavirus? Do they count that as a coronavirus death? Uh, and different states do things different ways. We haven't and we won't until it's over be able to put all of the numbers together and then put them all on equal footing and see what actually happened. And so to write an article that basically suggests that you're better off if you have one party's governor over another party's governor because of these numbers that are all over the place is that's sick. And that's a, that's an abuse of your job as a reporter for what's going on right now in the world it, it, to, it shows a sick mentality that we have overall anyway to be so involved in politics that we're bringing it up at the time when the world economy is shut down over a pandemic that's killing people globally like crazy it, it, it's just right. and like i said i don't want to go too far into that but it's something that really makes me sick well and it goes back to like i posted on my facebook and the different people the statistics they keep showing of all these you know how many people got the virus they don't hardly ever show you how many are active versus how many are closed, you know, and it don't, it don't show you, well, this many people recovered. I mean, you had to go digging for it, but every time it's, oh, like right now they keep showing, Tennessee's got this many, but yeah, they don't tell you that 2,400 of those people are recovered. Well, they no do. Longer. I'll tell you one tracker that shows recovered cases is on Bing. I did. I found that on well, Bing, every, online, all the numbers have like, it's, it's part of the main display. Well, is is the recovered cases? Yeah, but, no, I mean, there's there's things like that. I'm talking about like your local media. Like you turn on channel, and I'll call all of them out here, local, because they're all doing it. Three, five, thirteen, all of them. Everything is is this. Oh, there's seven thousand cases in Tennessee now. Not saying anything about oh this many. Every now and then, one of them will just sideways kind of mention it. But now, and something you were talking about, John, like with the testing thing. I hear all the time locally and some of the, oh, we're just not getting enough, te you know, we're testing, but we're not doing it. I can tell you for like where me and Chad are up here in Tipton County right now, as of this week, 
one of our high schools and our health department up in Covington, free to anybody that wants them, no symptoms or not, anything, anybody. So, and people say, oh, we can't get them. Like, I don't believe that. I think it's just a matter of what each individual government or area, because you never heard nothing on the news about us up here. And we got 60 something thousand residents in the whole county. And we're small, I mean, on, compared to Shelby County, I mean, obviously. But the fact that Podunk Tipton County has 54 cases all, no deaths, but we can, everybody here can walk up free of charge, go right up to that high school or the health department and you're not gonna be turned away. And it's like, okay, if we can do that, then the other bigger governments should have no problem, especially uh, Shelby County, there's what, 600,000 people? Uh, you know, that should be easy. A lie. But you know, um, you mentioned something and I'm not, and I'm not jumping off the uh, Corona. I wanted to bring something else. I, I want to kind of like go back to it. Something that y'all said about the media basically sucking. Um, and I just kind of wanted to basically explain that to you. Um, do y'all remember the fairness doctrine at all? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's the idea that, and it's basically, well, go ahead. I'll let you explain it. I've got to explain everybody listening. Yeah. <laughs> doctrine was uh, implemented in 1927 when the radio act came in uh you had to give both sides you had to be fair and balanced and then 1994 uh like cable television came out so they kept the fairness doctrine only on channels like 3 5 13 public access cable could do what they want and then in 2011 uh, Jules uh, Jankowski announced the elimination of all 83 regulations, fairness doctrine, saying that you can go, it's an editorialized license to uh, basically do whatever you want. The FCC is holding you to no balance. So that is honestly, in my personal opinion, what happened to the media nine years ago, and it started in 1994. I'll, I'll push back on that a little bit, and I'll tell you why. Uh, the reason the fairness doctrine is a bad idea is because it's, it, it's not that it's a bad idea to say that, that uh, somebody who is considered a news outlet should have to present things fairly and, and balanced. Um, that's a good idea. The bad thing is who decides, who decides what is fair and balanced? And are you policing speech at that point? They're like, hey, you, if you're going to have a Republican on, you have to have a Democrat. If you're going to have a progressive, you have to have a conservative. Um, they were basically, the fairness doctrine basically came out, said, one, you cannot lie, or you can be held from, the fourth estate was held a lot higher back then. You could be held for slander or libel. Now, basically, if you're a public figure, you can basically say, what is it, Jerry Falwell, back in the day was sleeping with his mother or something and like they said oh well that's so outlandish the fairness doctrine's not in playboy or no hustler wasn't you know in trouble what i'm just saying is is we've gotten so far because of the fairness doctrine going out and because of freedom of speech i'm not trying to to, to limit the first amendment i'm just trying to say news organizations need to not be first they need to be right right and there's no, no accountability i think that okay so and and well, let me say this because here's what i think the root of the problem is and i think it happened around the same time as you're talking about but i think it was the introduction of the 24-hour news network because in order to make content they had to add in opinion content because even worldwide 
24 hours worth of news ain't happening. Or baby. And so you got to fill the time slots and you got to drive ratings because you're, that's how you're funded is through your ratings. And I think that what happened is they blurred the line. They started blurring the line between, even if you look at the evolution of Fox news, Fox news, when Fox news came out, it was actually structured in the way you were talking about a second ago, where every time they had uh, somebody from the right on, they had somebody from the left on and in their news programs. And then there was a clear delineation between their news programs. And then from like 7 PM to 12 PM, there was opinion stuff. Bill O'Reilly and stuff. Yeah. Right. And then that started to bleed over into all the rest of the coverage to answer that on the other side of the political spectrum, you had MSNBC and uh, it, it, it started to grow into, they started to realize now CNN has realized that, Oh, you know, Fox news became the, the biggest news network there was and was making a ton of money. Doesn't mean they were getting everything right. They were making a ton of money. CNN, all the others see that they follow suit because opinions sell more ad space than the real news sales. Uh, but like I said, there are problems with the fairness doctrine too, because you look at, look at NPR. NPR is publicly funded by us. Let me, let me give you an example of, there's an NPR show that's a, uh, it's a three hour radio show every day. Now, John, you do a two hour radio show every day and you have two people working on that show. You and Gabe Kuhn, who, by the way, one of my favorite offensive linemen of all time from the university of Memphis, uh, but, uh, uh, let me just say that before he ever started working at the radio station, like the day he came in, I was like, Gabe Coon, that's the same Gabe Coon. But, uh, they like, I was really a fan, uh, you know, uh, but anyway, uh, before I get off on something, um, the, uh, you look at your show, two people, you Gabe Coon, that's basically all it takes to run your show for two hours. There is a three hour radio show running at NPR that has 30 employees, including a staff chef. They're publicly funded by our tax dollars. Now, the other problem with it is, I don't think anybody would deny that NPR, which is publicly funded by taxpayer dollars from people of every political opinion, leans left. And they favor the Democrat party and the left and liberal opinion. I'm not dogging that, but it's publicly funded. If anybody should be held to the fair, fairness doctrine, it's it would be a publicly funded station. But can I tell you something that's sad? And I'm going to be, and I'm about to be honest, and I'm probably going to get in trouble for this. The editors, they lean left. The people that work there, they're glorified readers. Oh, no, I know. I mean, I know how local NPR works. Uh, yeah. the, uh, they really do. Uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't tell what this you, either. But they, they come in. They okay. come in and it's all printed and they read it. Uh, yep. That's that's locally. Now they're the shows that are based out of DC are a little bit different, but uh, the uh, but uh, yeah, locally they they have a script printed. They come in and they read it verbatim. They go home. That's that's how that works. Sorry, <laughs> I know too much. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, yeah, and, and like I said, I, di I didn't want to get too far in the weeds on this media stuff, but uh, it, it's just disgusting the way they, the way things are now, and the way it is. So you can't keep all bias out of media because everybody has a personal opinion, 
and there's there's no way you couldn't write but uh and i'll give a shout out you know what i want educated people i want them to be honest i want them to tell me the news and then after they tell me the news let me give me your opinion i can agree with you i can disagree with you it doesn't matter but tell me what's going on don't tell me before things happen who to dislike who's the villain and what's going on let me see what happened. Tell me what happened. And then if you want to give me your opinion, I'm cool with that. I'm going to give a shout out here to somebody who works locally. So nobody probably reads their stuff because it's a small paper here called the Covington Leader. Um, but there is a writer named uh, Echo Day. And, and I know what her political leanings are. If you read her stories, you can't tell. Unless you read an opinion piece of hers. But if you read just a story where she's reporting the news, it's straight reporting the news. That's all it is. It's not, uh, they don't twist facts or cut uh, quotes to fit a narrative. It's just flat. There it is, the news. And, and I, I think it's very rare to see a writer that's able to do that these days. You know, I think you're exactly right. Uh, it's hard, you know, like, you know, uh, we're lucky with the fact, you know, we have like Peter Edmiston, we've got a local, you know, a lot of uh, local good writers. Um, I miss my be my buddy Ron Tillery. Uh, David Cobb is doing a great job. You know, what we got to Ron Tillery. Oh, Ron is um, enjoying life, baby. Ron, <laughs> I time actually. Um, he's, uh, he, uh, he's hanging out with his son. He's enjoying a lot of the time that he had, he missed. Um, his son's playing ball. He's watching him play. He's with him every day. He's talking to his buddies like me and Fish, and uh, he's uh, texting me all the time during my show, making me laugh. And uh, he's just living life well. I'm happy for him. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I always uh, he used to be on with Peter in the morning, didn't he? Back in the day, I remember that. Yeah, with Peter, dude. Dude, I remember when George Lapidus, uh, I was, um, I can't, I don't know if I can say this. I was uh, George Lapidus's beep uh, for like seven years. Dude, it's the internet. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Biatch. Like, I took George down to Tunica one time, man. Drove him back, and I thought, like, he got, like, a grand. Thought, like, maybe he, like, tipped me even, like, well, I was thinking he was going to tip me, like, 100 or something, you know? <laughs> I'm like, hey, what's up, George? He's like, hey. He's like, hold on. He goes in and he brings me his like media credential. And I'm like, I gotta believe in media credential. <laughs> Thanks, dude. He used to <laughs> give that uh uh which now look, I've uh, actually uh George uh was always like oh, super that. nice to me, so I'm not I'm not trashing him, I promise. <laughs> Dude, but just, he, he used to give those away on the, like he would give away he, like media he, guides and stuff, which I've, he, I've given away a couple of times on my show, a media guide, I think. But uh, uh, like that was, he, he thought more of those than the average fan thought, I think. No, he thought more of those than almost anybody. He made me laugh and I'm sorry my dog wants out. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, George taught me a lot about the uh, industry and I did a lot with him. But um, I am glad that uh, young people, if they do get into this, they don't have to go through what uh, I went through. It's kind of probably like us. We're going to watch the Jordan rules. 
you know, Steve, Gar- Steve Kerr got dotted. Today, <laughs> LeBron James wants to, like, hug and kiss you and change your kid's diaper. Back then, Jordan wasn't changing no diapers. He right, was yeah. So I, I'm basically saying, George Lapidus was that way. I'm a lot nicer. He, uh, I heard a story. I heard a great story one time about him from uh, somebody, one person that was a longtime listener, but they hated George because of the on-air personality he had, you know. And uh, because he was – I mean, he would be – he put on this jerk persona. Dude, you know the twi- – do you remember when he did trivia? And yeah, that's – yeah, and that's why most people hated him. Hang on you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this guy uh, – and he would like callers would call in with like you know kind of dumb opinions, which happens. And uh, and and he would, I mean, he wouldn't cut him any slack. Um, oh. A side note: one funny thing he used to do is whenever somebody would have a first name, he would find somebody famous. Like they would say uh, something like, "Calling from uh, uh, calling from Germantown is Mike," and then uh, George would say. It's not Mike Bloomberg, is it? Or like he would always say somebody famous. He would like if they, you know, if they said it was uh, Matthew, but he'd say, "Is it Matthew McConaughey?" Uh, you know, or something like that. His but, name, his name drop, name dropping George. <laughs> and, uh, names in Lapita. That's I true. Yeah, he's brother. But during one hour of a show, he would drop fifteen names. Dude, well. Uh, but uh, or last night <laughs> <laughs> that's like regis uh the uh the story uh though that i heard was great because there was this uh there was a fan like he listened to sports 56 all the time and uh and like he was in oak hall which was one of george's uh sponsors and uh he was in oak hall and he saw george lapidus there and he's thinking man I'm going to give this guy a piece of my mind. I'm really just going to rip into this jerk because of the way he is. And I think he may have even hung up on this guy or something when he called into the show. Right. And uh, so the guy, the guy ends up uh, going over to George and he's ready to rip into him. And he says, Hey, George Lapidus. And he says, yeah. And he says, Hey, I'll listen to you, man. And he's and anyway, the, I don't know, remember the exact conversation. George is the nicest guy to him. Like, such a nice guy that the guy was like, man, I couldn't say anything to him because he was so nice. Like I, I didn't know, even know what to do because he wasn't the same guy that I thought he was on the radio. <laughs> He's not a bad dude. Um, there's some, you know, he gave me uh, one of the nicest gifts ever. Uh, after he passed, he left a uh, really, uh, hell, I'm not even going to say it, but he gave me a really nice gift that uh, I'll tell you one thing. I was so shocked. Like I thought that, like they screwed up. I'm like, are this in for me? I'm like, we can leave this for me. And they're like, no, this is for you. I was like, oh, you know, yeah. it was a pretty good guy. Yeah. Mm. Um, now I've been watching, I don't know what, uh, you guys have been watching in quarantine, but I'm a little behind. Like, uh, as a matter of fact, I, I thought about doing another video series on our channel, like, uh, something Dude, like two, two, too late reviews or something where you like haven't seen what everybody else has seen. Like I've just started season seven of the walking dead. So like, you know, I was thinking, uh, no, actually I already knew Glenn died, but, uh, like I, I uh, but you know, there was like all that hadn't happened yet. Cause I just started watching that, but, I've uh, never, 
So I'm excited. Somebody else told me to watch it. So Walking Dead is worth watching. Yeah, I lost interest in it for a long time, and I'm just now going back to it. Um, but uh, I really loved it at first. Uh, but I got into it late. It was it was three, four seasons in before I got into it. And uh, but I got to visit where they filmed and stuff, and that was really cool. Um, Have you all seen Succession? Seen what now? Succession. No, Succession? I haven't seen that. Uh-huh. Neither one of y'all. Uh-uh. Dude, like narcissist, nar- narcissist, and a bunch of rich people doing some crazy stuff. That's your show. <laughs> what I watched over the last few days, I binge watched Tiger King. I hadn't seen it yet, and it was a global phenomenon. I know for like the last three weeks, but uh, I had not seen Tiger King yet. That shit is crazy. That is the craziest. So- and dude, it never stops getting crazier. You know, it it gets deeper and deeper and nuttier and nuttier. I've never seen anything like this in my life. And now I'm seeing them talk about like, oh, uh, they're going to make a movie about it. I'm like, how could you make a movie about it? You can't. There's nothing left on the. They don't leave anything to the imagination. Nothing on the table. First of (laughs) all, movies have to have heroes and there are no heroes in that story. And it is. It is the craziest thing I've ever seen. Like I said, I don't think they can make a movie out of it just because you've already seen the reality of the whole situation. And the reality is so much more absurd and interesting than anything somebody could write that it will, you'll, you'll never, you'll never replicate that. It is the craziest thing I've ever seen. Did you see it, Adam? No, no, I, I haven't watched it now. (laughs) I haven't watched it too. I got to talk to you, okay? And um, it is not something that is going, It's this is not uh, Apocalypse Now. This isn't like Godfather or Success, I don't know, Game of Thrones. I don't know what people watch shit. <laughs> what I'm saying though, for documentaries, this is crazy, but gets crazy but gets crazy, but gets crazy. Like, you think it can get crazier. Every episode gets crazier than the last. Like, I turned it on. I was pissed that I had to watch it. She she turned it on, my girlfriend, honey. And then I I was like, shut up. Give me that remote. We're watching them all. It's on. Oh, yeah. no. (laughs) Go Exotic is bonkers. Dude, the thing about it is... And Carol killed her husband. <laughs> the thing about the show is that you don't seriously, like in the first episode, Carol Baskin comes off as the sane one. I thought it was then about you, tigers. Look, Carol Baskin comes off as sane in the first episode. And then in the second episode, you find out she may have killed her husband and fed him to the tigers. Right. Yeah. And then there's this other guy who uh, you've seen him on like the Tony uh, Montana. No, not that guy. I didn't think oh. we got to him yet. There's this other guy, Doc Annell, that is in South Carolina. You've seen this guy on like Jay Leno, and he's been out with like Jack Hanna and Ace stuff. Ventura. Yeah, yeah. Did the animals on Ace Ventura? I mean, the guy is like you've seen him before, and uh, you think, okay, well, here's the normal guy in the situation. Uh, uh-uh, uh, buddy. Uh, he ain't nowhere near normal. This guy mm-hmm. renamed himself something that means God or something. 
in, yeah. in like India. I mean, uh, it's Bhagavata or whatever, yeah. and it's God in India. Dude, they're all batshit crazy. I mean, every single one of them, and every I, character introduced the guy in, and they introduce a guy that if he wasn't the inspiration for Scarface, then Scarface was the inspiration for him. No, he really was. No, it's a, it's a fact. Well, like, actually, Scarface, maybe partially, but Scarface was actually based on like a 1920-something book. But in, uh, well, in, in, the, in what was about Al Capone. Well, in, um, in the show, they say it's uh, based after him, and I liked it. Because the dude did move a whole lot of yayo. Oh so. man, dude, the, the guy, the guy's a Cuban immigrant that was a big time drug dealer that talks about, now get this, the guy's not in jail and talks about cutting up an ATF informant with a circular saw Yep, and getting rid of the body. It says, I've done my time. Yeah. And get this. There's an, Adam, think about this, man. There's another person in there that is free right now and still working at a zoo uh, who admitted to being paid to kill somebody. Yep. Oh, yeah. Well, that's like that. uh, I think it's Dark Tourist or something. There's a series on Netflix that's about like different crazy stuff like that. And there's a guy that was, he was a, a assassin for Pablo Escobar. And they're with him talking to him. He's talking about all these hundreds of people he's killed, even Americans. And they're right there with him. And the guy's like, you know, I'm thinking, how is this guy? Even Even that, though, the dude's in Mexico. Like, you can get that. This is in the United States, dude. And everybody involved in this, that's the thing about it is everybody involved in this show, just about, you find out as a criminal. Right. Well, apparently I've seen. Everybody in the tiger industry is a criminal. Yeah, that's the thing. (laughs) That's the thing. The whole industry of, like, Zoo animals, period, is just a bunch of crooks, man. Dude, and the sad thing is the apex predator you think is the tiger when you go in there and you want to protect it. No, the apex predator is man, and he just fiends. You have a gay man who does a lot of meth, and he gets straight men to marry him because he he uses tigers and meth. You have a woman who gets other women because she says she's doing it for conservation. So they work for free while she makes millions of dollars. And then you've got another guy who has a harem because he gets 18 year old women with daddy issues who come and live with him. And they all use tigers to get what they want. And another guy who gets a man, leases a mansion in Vegas and pretends it's his house and gets all kinds of women to, to uh, sleep with him and his wife. And, Dude, it I'm telling you, it never stops getting nuts until the very end. It's still nuts. It is bananas, the whole thing. Right. That Joe Exotic dude is such a, a walking contradiction. It, it, it's crazy. You couldn't write. Nobody would write a character <laughs> you like can't write this. Nope. You right. can't write a character that's a gun-toting, government-hating, redneck, gay, gay cowboy who raises tigers. percent of the vote in in oklahoma for governor yes oh man came in third right now the biggest question though the biggest question now is what's the over under on how long it is before all of them end up prosecuted in jail and they start rounding them up exotic's in jail now man (laughs) exotic's in jail for hiring somebody to kill the other woman in the documentary (laughs) i'm talking about the rest of all of them though baskins is going to jail it's crazy let me say this about carol baskin though uh 
I think that it's possible that her first husband actually just took off to Costa Rica. You're nice. And no, I really do because it just seemed he, like. I do. Well, look, maybe, but uh, I'm not saying, look, maybe that it could be that too, but I'm just saying that he obviously he cheated on her all the time and he loved going to Costa Rica. I mean, that's even his family said that his family that thinks she killed him still talked about how much he loved going back and forth to Costa Rica. And he had this girl down there and this guy, if he was really that into it with her, he could set up a thing to cast suspicion on her a little bit. Up he, all 20 knows, here's oh, the thing. Think about it. He gave every penny up. If any, if he was alive, who gives up $20 million? Did he though? Because didn't they say he didn't trust the government was always burying money everywhere. Didn't trust no, banks. He did get, she got 20 million, but I don't, you did. You're, you're right. I forgot about that. He may have hidden a bunch of money. I mean, he probably but had 20, a ton in Costa Rica. I, Damn lot of money. Yeah, but if you I, the the thing that was suspicious to me about it, as far as in favor of him just disappearing and planning to just fall off the face of the earth, the thing to me that's in favor of that is the fact of the number of people he made sure to tell that he was going to ask Carol for a divorce before he went to her, like. I don't, you don't usually have people that come up on this decision and then go tell four or five people before they go confront the person. And so the fact that he's laying all this, like planning all these clues is suspicious to me. It doesn't mean that that's what happened. It's just suspicious to me that he did that. And it, it, it just seems like he knew that if he just flat disappeared, there had to be somewhere to lead the cops that wouldn't lead them to look for him, but to look for his body. That's what I, you know, that's my conspiracy theory about the thing. At the same time, this lady is no saint and, uh, and no, she's crazy and could very well have, could very well have fed him to her tigers. I mean, I, who knows? Hey, I like, dude, anybody that's like, Hey, all you cool cats and kids every single night. <laughs> I know man of sandwiches. Yeah. And then, and then the man, oh my gosh, the stuff her husband's wearing at the wedding. That, that Flintstones with the chain oh, and disturbing. Barney Rubble would cry. Uh, it was, I mean, oh, I don't, this is the most bonkers thing. Have you watched the after show yet with Joel McHale? Yes. It was the cheapest set of television. I've ever seen. It wasn't a bad episode or anything. It wasn't bad though because you got I'm to just, hear from all those people again. I get paid because basically this is what they did. Yeah, you know? that's like, exactly right though. This you could have exactly, like right now. This is my first time to Zoom. Like I didn't even. If you didn't notice earlier, I'm sure you did. How stupid I was. I couldn't <laughs> damn audio on, but it's my first time to Zoom. I think that's what they did with the other guys. Oh yeah, they they shipped them a cell phone and said, "Hey, uh, hit the Zoom link." <laughs> exactly like me right now. Um, but yeah, it. it uh, I didn't see the necessity. Although, I mean, if I was Joel McHale, I'd take the money too. I didn't see the necessity of having a host. You could have just had somebody ask questions and then edited it together, like you do a normal documentary, without the question asker being in it. Hey, we would have done it for a few hundred bucks. Oh, dude, I, I'd have done it for 50 <laughs> To talk to these people, I'd do it for free. 
to talk to these people through Zoom. I don't want to meet a damn one of them in person. I know what you mean. Hey, I do have a crazy question for you, though. Okay. I know me and you disagreed a little bit. Um, I, I believe we have because I watched uh, some of your other stuff. I want to hear um, between you two guys, who are some of your top quarterback picks? For this draft. Oh, yeah. Um, I know. I'll let Adam go first. What would you say? John's cut out when he, he said something. Oh, he said, uh, he said, who's your, who's your favorite quarterback? You got like Joe Burrow to Jalen to everybody. Oh, well, I personally, and me, don't let the hat fool you. I don't think Jalen's going to be that guy. I, I've seen he, he, I'm, I think he's a good guy. He's a great leader. He's, he's motivator, but I don't, his mechanics are just things that he's not good at that are going to catch up to him at the speed of the game in the NFL. I think the same is going to go for Tua also. I think Tua is probably going to be better than Jalen if Tua can stay healthy. I don't. That's another of my big complaints. You know, Burrow, he gets in the right system. I think he could be good. But he's a system guy. I think he's going to be a system dude. But as far as the overall best, do you mean mainly who I think should be the number one or who I think actually will go number one? Um, who you think. Like, like who I think should be number one? Yep. Um, if I'm a – if I was an owner, I, I think the safe guy would be Burrow. I think he would be – I don't think he's going to be the quarterback of the future per se. He might he's – he's a 50-50 in my eyes. I don't – but I think if I had to go for the safe bet because two is too injury prone and Jalen is not uh, – He's got some questions. I'm not so sure, you know, he's going to be able to keep up with the game. And I, I'm trying to think. There's somebody I'm forgetting about. Jordan Love. Yeah. I, Justin Herbert, Jordan Love. You know, uh, some people like, uh, you know, Fromm. It's, it's, it's a weird thing. I, I look at this year, and I think that people are um, completely screwed up. Um, uh, yeah. Like, Chance Womack is a edge rusher, and he's the only, I mean, true edge rusher, I think, in this draft, and people are underrating him. Um, yeah. I don't I know. I, be good, though. And, yeah, I just keep looking at this year's draft, and I keep thinking to myself, it's the deepest year we've ever seen in wide receivers. Yeah. Um, ever. I mean, ever. We're talking about, like, um, like realistically – God, I don't even know how to explain this to you, but like Jerry Judy, how much better is he really than like CeeDee Lamb? I think is better than him, but Jerry Judy, and I don't want to go with like T, like T Higgins. Um, think about just just like uh, all the wide receivers out there. You know, Florida's wide receiver. Je I mean, think about Justin Jefferson at LSU. It's right. just like the wide receiver position is so deep. I feel like you go offensive line, you get those cornerbacks, you get those that 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 edge rusher. There's only really two of them out there, I think, this year. And I think you're strong. I think quarterbacks, I think it's an okay gear. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I really don't see anybody that I'm in. Of course, there's two Bama quarterbacks in there. And I know a lot of people would expect me to be like, yeah, they're going to be. 
I, I, I'm more objective with that. I'd love to see him go big. Hurts yeah. and Tua. See, okay, can I ask you a question? This is my, my, my thing. Um, I like Burrow. I like Herbert just because 6'6", 240, and that big damn arm. If, right. if Tua wasn't hurt, I'd take him. I like Love better than Tua right now because of the non-injury. Now, and I want to ask you something. Because of Jerry Judy, because of, hell, the just Alabama, I mean, he had the best of the best. Um, right. He came back and had the greatest second half in college football against Clemson. But the one year he went to the national championship, they lost 44-16, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. So, what is really Tua? Well, I let, let me. I'll jump in. Uh, I do. Th- I've always thought that Tua lacks uh, some things that he needs for the NFL level, uh, even before the injury. I, the injury actually doesn't concern me that much with Tua. Uh, what does concern me with him is the amount of time he takes in the pocket to make a decision. And he is afforded that opportunity because of the team that he plays on. But when you get to the NFL, you're going to one of the worst teams in the league. You're not going to have that kind of time. And so I think his decision-making just has to come up. I mean, definitely, he's got the arm. He's he's fairly accurate. Uh, You know, he's got – again – the team he's on makes him look really good. He's got and, his problem. He's got Mariota syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he has. I don't know if that that like he. I don't know if he's that injury prone. But uh, no, not not injury prone. I mean, the holds on that, to the ball too that, long, takes too long to make decisions. Well, no, that's true. Yeah, but he, now he doesn't. He will still throw it. He doesn't take off running. Well, and he but he thinks he can see. He, he thinks he can run faster than he really can. He too. I've always said, you're 100% right, my man. I've always said to his biggest mistake, because he does actually read defenses very well. He does uh, – uh, he has a pre-snap read. He's very intelligent, but he thinks he's a better athlete than he really is, and he tries to extend the play, and that's what gets him injured. Right. Jalen's got the same problem. The only problem with Jalen is Jalen's much stronger. Well, he's more he's athletic. Just a stronger dude. Ailey. And he can take a lick. More than two or two gets himself in the wrong, you know, situations. What but I think I, is, to me, what's interesting with uh, Joe Burrow, who I, I think uh, at this oh, point. Stop. Joe Burrow or Trevor Lawrence right now. Yeah, oh, Trevor Lawrence. I take Trevor Lawrence over <laughs> Joe Burrow any day of the week. But this is what I wanted to ask you. This is what I was trying to say about this year. Like, how crazy is it that we would jump on the top of a Trevor Lawrence before anybody in this draft, even after – 60 touchdowns and six interceptions, 5,600 yards by Joe Burrow and a national bleeping championship. But we'd all say, Trevor Lawrence, Trevor Lawrence, Trevor Lawrence. Well, I think I think uh, th- we would, but I think part of that is uh, – I think part of that is a misconception of uh, available talent. I-, I think part of it is, like, everybody knows LSU is good and has good players around their quarterback and Alabama is good. Clemson is new to the the dominant power club, and so people still think the quarterback is doing more than maybe he is in Clemson, and uh, they're not crediting the rest of the team and the coach with some of the success. Uh, 
birds but every. I think that uh, I, I think that the thing with Joe Burrow, the most interesting thing to me is um, that the Redskins just hired, uh, well, not just, but the Redskins hired the guy who is credited with bringing Joe Burrow along, Joe Brady. Joe Brady. The Redskins, though, have the second pick, not the first pick, and the Bengals need a quarterback. They already got Dwayne Haskins who beat out Joe Burrow, so they're not going to take Burrow. I mean, uh, they're going to keep Dwayne Haskins. So, well, that is, that's the big question, though, right? It, it is, are they, or do they work something out with the Bengals and try to move up? Because Dwayne Haskins has gotten to play and has not shown that much. Yeah, I don't think he's that great. Now, I'll tell you the unpopular opinion that people probably will think I'm crazy, but Trevor Lawrence is going to be the next Blake Bortles. I don't see oh, him making shit. Oh, God. No, I don't <laughs> like think that's five, the next five years. Bortles? Yeah, he's going to go in with all this hype. He's a big dude. If you can tell me, Ryan, if you can tell me, Jeff George, Blake Bortles. Yeah, he's gonna. What's gonna happen? He's gonna go to a team like Chad said, one of the worst teams. He's gonna light it up, bring him. He's gonna he's gonna step him up. But then after that second year, they're gonna catch up to him, and he's gonna get just. I mean, it happened in college. If you look at this year, look at the drop off for this year for for the previous year because everybody started to catch up with him at the college level, and he'll get exposed this year if we have a college game. You watch, Clemson will not have. He won't have his best year. He already, he's already beyond his best years. I, I, I disagree. I, I think Trevor Lawrence is, is the most NFL-ready quarterback we've seen in the college game since Andrew Luck. And I could see his, I could see his career tra- trajectory following Andrew Luck where he ends up with a team where it, he's not able to reach great heights. Now, I mean, I don't know that he would retire early, but, uh, you know. I think that's the best-case scenario for him, though is to have what happened with uh, – what you call it? What's the name? <laughs> At Indianapolis. Yeah, but that's I think not that's, bad. Not necessarily. No. Um, but you know what, though? Can I, can I tell you something, though? I don't think there's any way Andrew – I mean, uh, Lawrence is uh, Jamarcus Russell. He's not sip, sip, sipping on some scissors. Yeah. Now I agree with you I don't there. think he's quite the uh, quarterback prospect that Luck necessarily was. But what I think he is is – if he's healthy, and that's just something we won't know, but if he stays healthy, well, damn, the sky's the limit because basically health is what screwed up luck. And Lawrence is one of those guys that kind of feels like the game is just easy for him. And I think when he gets – if he gets a Sean Payton, if he gets a Bill Belichick, if he gets a smart offensive mind that can like Sean McVay that gets this young kid – excited about football i think he'd be one hell of a monster now i agree and, with you. i agree with you if he goes to the right system oh yeah but you know how it is usually he goes to the all, wrong system that's all of them yeah burrow's the same boat if burrow goes to the right system i think he could be awesome but if he doesn't though he's going to get destroyed because lsu allowed for him burrow but who who doesn't want sunshine from remember <laughs> the titans to be their quarterback oh god <laughs> oh god you're so right. That's well, good. It's the first thing that pops in everybody's right. mind the, first, the minute and they see him. My measuring stick for Burrow, and I tell a lot of people this, of course, because most a lot of my knowledge with SEC and Alabama, if you go back and watch the Alabama game, not this past year, but the previous year, and how much he struggled with a, a oh, beat-down beat down defense. Last year, 
this year. He did, he didn't even look like the same quarterback. Yeah, yeah. and Alabama's defense was kind of roughed up, and they still gave him hell. It took everything he had to beat him. And Alabama's considered one of the top. Imagine what's going to happen when he gets in where every defense in the NFL is far better than Alabama's crippled defense, unless you know, he's surrounded by the right system. I'm going to remind you of one thing, though. Back in the day, you had a guy named George Seifert and a kid named Joe Montana. Crummy arm, uh, but got into a great system with Jerry Rice. You had Roger Craig. You know, you know, you had, you know, Dwight Clark. What I'm saying is, he gets into the right system. I'm not saying like like Patrick Mahomes. That dude would have been great anywhere. Right, right. He's one of the exceptions of the rule. Yeah. He read though, in all honesty, he 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 is, but maybe he isn't. Andy Reid was smart enough to sit him that first year behind Alex Smith, and he let him learn. And when that kid got in there, you didn't see that kid at Texas Tech. That was a different kid that I saw that came out after one year with Andy Reid. So if you get the right mind around the right athlete, anything's possible. Right. Now you're right. Yeah, that's true. And the right supporting cast. And then the one thing that I would remind anybody of is uh, that – Jerry Rice came from a community college in Mississippi to the NFL. Joe Flacco came from the FCS. Delaware. Carson Wentz came from the FCS, uh, although Wentz was more of a known commodity. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a big name coming out of college. Russell Wilson was uh, a two-school nobody. That they well, took Tom a Brady on. was a what a fourth fourth round fourth round, round fourth round pick. I mean, he came from a big school, but he was a fourth round pick. Yeah, I mean, it, I think supposed to be the guy Tom Brady. He was picked one ninety nine. Remember that? Yeah, Drew him the love. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but uh, hey, yeah. how bad though? Like Drew Brees, he had to leave San Diego before he could become the Hall of Famer. And if he didn't leave San Diego and get with Sean Payton. Would Drew Brees be Drew Brees? I don't know. Or would Philip Rivers have done better somewhere else? At the Giants. Great question. If Eli had stayed with the Chargers, what about Philip Rivers at the Giants? Dang, that's another good question. Would Eli have ever gotten a championship if he was in San Diego? Probably I, not. You know, I, who knows, though, with uh, LaDainian Thomason true. running the ball? Back then. Uh, you know, who knows? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't think anybody thinks that Eli is the sole reason they got to their Super Bowls. Um, but yeah. they certainly pulled off some amazing stuff when they You did. know what the number one question is, though? Is Tom Grady going to be able to replicate the Peyton Manning magic from like he did in Denver at Tampa? Great. Hey, I, I love what you just said. Will the Bucks with Brady and Mike Evans, who made Johnny Manziel a magic man, yeah. will Bruce Arians, who made Carson Palmer better ever than he was in Cincinnati at Arizona, will Bruce Arians and Mike Evans' big ass be able to do it for Tom Brady? Honestly, I think the offensive line is a question. Honestly, yeah. I, I think that, uh, yeah, it's the – I think the Brady-Belichick thing has always been the combination, and I'm not sure either one of them can do. I mean, we have a sample size with uh, Bill Belichick prior to Brady that wasn't that great. Uh, but, I mean, we also have him winning 11 or 12 games with Matt Castle. So, yeah. uh, it, it's – but I honestly think it was just the perfect marriage of two people who might not have got along well, but they did business together well. 
And uh, I, I'm not sure that they're going to be able to replicate that in Tampa. I was excited to see him come to the Titans because I, because of the relationships that he has with staff and players at the Titans organization. I wanted to see him go there because I thought a, a team that was one win away from a Super Bowl could have made that jump. I understand why they did what they did. And obviously Brady probably didn't want to come to Tennessee or they would have went with him over Tannehill. Um, But I understand why they did what they did. They overpaid Tannehill, but they didn't really have much of a choice. Yeah. I mean, well, imagine if the Titans had gotten Brady and say they traded up with it for just all their picks to get, say, a CeeDee Lamb or a Jerry Judy to help Brady out. And then having Derrick Henry in the backfield and, I mean, you, you figured they were one game away last year. That would probably be almost a lot for the Super Bowl. If, if Brady is Brady. Right, right. Assuming he was himself. Am I crazy to say this? Are y'all going to laugh at me when I say this? I'm happy that they kept Ryan Tannehill. <laughs> Oh, no. Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think you're crazy. Yeah, I, it's not crazy. Because, I mean, I think that the only option other than that was Tom Brady. I think if Tom Brady's on the table, you can't turn down the greatest of all time if he wants to come play for your team. But I think when, with him, I think that was the only wrench in the thing that made him wait so long on Tannehill. Because other than that, the Titans have no options out there. They, they finished in the top four, so their draft pick is number two what uh 31 i mean uh, no 29 yeah uh, they're, they're, but that's but this is the one thing i, I want to interrupt and remind y'all something this is why i say like i actually believe in ryan bleep and tanning hill this dude at texas a&m was a wide receiver he had a bunch of different coaches then became a quarterback then went to miami had a bunch of adam gase was so jacked up at the mets i mean at the i said the mets because he was so jacked up <laughs> Gets dead gum press conference. I was like, what is wrong with this guy? He's had horrible coaches. He gets with Vrabel, who's a damn good coach. He gets Derrick Henry, a great offensive line with Conklin and Taylor Luan. And he gets to do his best play action. And by the way, just so you know, this is his sixth offensive coordinator in eight years. How many dudes' minds would usually melt running that many days? Well, that's true. And, I mean, that's also an argument for whatever team ends up with Marcus Mariota. Uh, because Marcus Mariota has been through so much change. Has he really had a chance to uh, blossom in all of this? And and we really don't know. Maybe he'll benefit like Ryan Tannehill did. Uh, But, yeah, Ryan Tannehill never had a team around him. I I always thought – I thought at the Dolphins he was a pretty good quarterback. He just – it was clear that they never put talent around him, and half the time they weren't even trying to win. I just think with Tom Brady you can't do a play action – with Derrick Henry and anybody give the like, oh, yeah, he's actually going to uh, not hand it to him and he's going to run around the edge. I mean, you know what I mean? Like right. the play fake, they completed a league high 79% of their passes on the play action. I want you to think about that. That's almost freaking eight out of ten times, okay? Yeah, I mean, that's right. the threat out of the backfield. I mean, oh, they got a lot. And they were the number one team in rushing and they, they were the number one team in yards per play at 6.94 so again if you're going to bring back that quarterback that running back that offensive damn line that coach i want them back and i love tom brady he's the goat but i don't want them to change everything that they're doing 
for one guy. I want them to continue to go forward with what they're doing. And what yeah. they're doing is playing nasty damn football. That's hey, and look, that's oh, yeah. not crazy at all. I mean, I, I don't I don't have a problem at all with uh, the Tannehill uh, with keeping Tannehill. Like I said, if it wasn't Tom Brady on the table, uh, then it's not even a discussion to me because there's nobody else available that reaches that kind of – I mean, I wouldn't even do it for a Drew Brees at his age. or, or um, But Tom Brady is a unique situation. This is like, uh, you, you know, getting Jordan right after his sixth championship if you had the chance to get him. And let's say you already had a young promising – whoever was promising at that time. I, I don't remember, like uh, – but, uh, you know, uh, let's say you had an Allen Iverson or somebody that was promising uh, and looking pretty good and had a great year, but it's Michael freaking Jordan, you know. And so it, it's the same uh, to me. The, that's the only reason you give consideration to Tom Brady. But I, I'm, I'm happy with Tannehill, super happy with Tannehill as a Titans fan. If Mike Vrabel wasn't the coach and didn't know Tom Brady as well as he did in Bill Belichick, I would be less inclined to like it. But the fact that this is somebody so close to that organization and those people, I'm thinking to myself, well, damn, he knows something I don't. Right, right. You're right. That's exactly – I'm the same way. I, I'm fine with Tannehill. I, I think that was – you couldn't get Brady. That was the obvious – I mean, nothing crazy about that. That's the way to go. And maybe hey, they never considered Brady. I, you know, who knows? Brady may have known he's going to Tampa Bay for a year now because we know that they do that stuff. LeBron knew he was going to Miami well before he went to Miami. He knew he was going back to Cleveland well before he went back to Cleveland. For that big discount, how did Jeter's house all of a sudden become, like, available exactly on Brady Brady for it? Exactly right, yeah. That was very fascinating. Like, there was something that said that, yes, this was known a little bit before. Yeah, I I think so, too. And, uh, you know, you're – and there are opportunities, I think, uh, for sports ownership in Florida uh, with different ventures. And it's kind of like the David Beckham thing. Why, why did David Beckham end up in Miami? Because they offered him ownership in a soccer team. Uh, you know, they uh, Jeter, I think, is going to end up with some ownership in a baseball team. Uh, and yeah. So and, and I think Brady's looking at some something similar. He's getting down there in that Florida sports, and he's looking at some ownership somewhere. Uh, pro- probably not football, uh, but probably another sport. Oh, no, I, I, oh, I, I was. I thought he was going to jump in. I'm going to tell you one thing. The big thing though is also with Brady, Tampa Bay had to be worked out because the TB12 thing, you thought it was going to be California, <laughs> yeah. but he had like the TB12 thing on the Patriots facility. Tampa Bay, have you all not heard about what they're doing? They're basically doing the same damn thing for him. So they're like setting it up for, what's his name? Alex, whatever. Alex, yeah, they, whatever that guy's name is. Dude, that TB12 stuff, Bray's going to make his money. He got his 50 million. Him and Giselle are happy. They're living in Derek Jeter's pad. You know, life is good for the Brady's. And you know what? The Bucks might actually be in the playoffs since damn John Gruden. And, and they got the coolest stadium in the, in the right. NFL. Right, yeah. That is the big takeaway is that he's going to be playing in the coolest stadium in the NFL because it's the only stadium with a pirate ship in the end zone. True that. They blow <laughs> up Kane. Look, uh, 
That's I'll wrap right. it up here. Uh, but uh, thanks, John, for coming on the show, man. Uh, you know, uh, we've yeah, been wanting to get on the air together for a while. And uh, so now we've finally uh, at least been able to make it happen on this show. Um, but you owe me. You, you, you still have to come to 56, both of y'all. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely be there. Adam probably has to get permission for that. <laughs> but, Sorry, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but, yeah, I'll definitely, I, I'll definitely uh, come on at some point. Yeah. But man, I, it's been exciting. It's been great having you here, and thanks for talking about the Jubilee uh, with us and everything, man. Well, I hope yeah. I wasn't stupid and I explained it well. And I just want to say, uh, both of y'all, thank you. I love y'all. Be safe, and everybody out there, uh, be safe. And I'll talk to y'all soon. All right, dude. Talk to you soon. You too, bud. Thank you.